Good morning. I'll be doing the second reading, and it's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you open up the word with me and we can read together. Uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should do wrong, should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Thank you, Trish, for reading so well. For insight... Keep your Bibles open to that passage. We will work our way through it. There is an outline on the inside of the newsletter. You might find that helpful to follow along as well. Uh, Let's join again and turn our hearts to God in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us to receive these words, not as the word of men, but as the very words of God. So we pray, Lord, that you might use these words to change our lives for your cause, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it goes without saying that for each and every one of us, our life will change every year. From year to year, life will continue to change. And there are so many changes in life all the time. Changes in where we live, perhaps. Changes in jobs. Changes even in status. Recently, I remember I had to remind someone of their first year wedding anniversary. They forgot. Man, I couldn't believe if I forgot that. But anyway, I had to remind them of that. But changes in family life, changes in health, changes in circumstances. Now, of course, a lot of these changes just happen to us and we have no control over them at all. We might face health issues and that's just beyond our control. We can face redundancy at work and that's beyond our control. But then, of course, there are changes in which we can be active intentional and deliberate about. 
And so, for example, at home in our front yard, our garden, we can decide to plant more trees or not to replace the dead ones we left to die. We can decide to do that. That's within our control. As a family, by myself, we can decide to have a fourth child or not. That's somewhat in our control, not that we are. There are sometimes hope. There are changes in which we can be active about, intentional and deliberate, and some we can't. But this morning, I want us all to consider this, and that is, have I been active, intentional, and deliberate in this past year in changing my life so that I am more godly today? How have my life changed in just this past year? And has it changed so that today the life I'm living is in fact more pleasing to God? Now, of course, for those of you who are not yet believers, it is wonderful that you can join us each week in our service and in our fellowship. But what you'll hear today is the life that is expected of all Christians. And hopefully that will paint such a beautiful picture that you might want it as well. But for those of us who are already Christians, young Christians, old Christians, I want us to ask ourselves, have I, in the last year, been active, intentional, and deliberate in changing my life so that today I'm living a more godly life? Because, you see, as Christians, Christianity is not just about what I believe, but it is also largely about how I live in response to God and his grace of salvation. You see, in Christianity, it makes a real difference to life today, and it's meant to be good. And so the question is, have I been active, intentional, and deliberate in the past year in changing my life so that I am living a more godly life today? Well, in this passage, the Apostle Paul reminds these young Christians... Now that you are saved, he reminds them of one principle, one simple principle, and how it affects two areas of their life. One principle and two practices. It's meant to change their life. And so Paul here begins with this one principle. It is simple. Now that you are saved and belong to God, now that you have crossed over from darkness to light, from death to life, from enemies of God to sons and daughters of the living God, Live now like you belong to God. Live now to please God. Live now to please your heavenly Father. That is the principle, and it should come as no surprise. You see, if any one of us think, I'm a Christian, but I still live for me. I still live to please me, that my life is mine. In fact, God is just up there to please me then something has gone horribly and terribly wrong if we think that way. Um, Our former general moderator, David Cook, which means he was the head of our denomination for a few years, our camp speaker last year, in fact, he has this excellent line which is a wonderful reminder of what is expected of Christians. And he said this. He says, You cannot claim the benefits of redemption but deny its implications. I'll say that again. You cannot claim the benefits of redemption but deny its implications. And that is as Christians, we cannot claim to be saved by the death of Jesus. We cannot claim to be brought into the light. 
We cannot claim to be redeemed and reconciled and granted eternal life, a place in heaven, and be adopted into God's eternal family. Claim all those benefits, but then deny what it means to live under Jesus as our king, our ruler, and our master. And so we can't say, Jesus is my saviour. He saved me, but he's not my Lord. He doesn't rule me. No, a genuine Christian would say he is both my saviour and my Lord. You see, that's a simple test to work out whether someone is a genuine Christian or not. Jesus is not just my saviour. He saved me by his death, but he's also my Lord, which means he's my king, he's my master, and I serve him. And so you cannot claim the benefits of redemption, but deny its implications. And the implication is that the Christian life, all our lives as individuals, is meant to be pleasing to God. A simple principle. It's meant to be pleasing to God. And that was the principle the Apostle Paul was reminding them of. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live, or, or literally how to walk, in order to please God. There's the principle, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now the word instruction there is the word used of military commands and orders as is passed along the line of soldiers. And so the Apostle Paul, he is claiming that these commands did not come from him, but all the way up from Jesus himself, from Jesus to him and now to them. And the command for all Christians is to live to please God. That is the command of the king. Now, if we take a moment just to reflect on that, to think that my life or your life could ever possibly be pleasing to God. Reflect on that for a moment. How profound that is, that God would look upon my life and your life, our feeble lives here in Surrey Hills, that God might look upon my life and see how I struggle through the day managing our kids, struggle each week in writing sermons, struggle in meeting with people, and somehow for that to be pleasing to God. Isn't that wonderful? And for your life, how could it possibly move the heart of the God of the universe? But that's so wonderful because it is possible. In fact, it is what God has called us to do, to live lives that is pleasing to the God of the universe. And so Paul here begins with this one simple principle for all Christians. Live to please God. That is the gospel implication. But now he talks about the practice. How will this principle look like in practice? How does this principle affect our lives? And the Apostle Paul here focuses on just two areas of our life, the private life and the public life, from the bedroom to the broadroom, sexual purity and brotherly love, just these two areas. And so first here, Paul addresses the area of sexual purity. Now this is perhaps something I suspect is an area of life we just don't like to talk about, especially in church. 
because it's so private, it's so personal, and I don't particularly like talking about it. But you see, the Apostle Paul here will not allow us to keep it so private that it escapes God's scrutiny. So it can be uncomfortable as we reflect and think about this. But Paul says, if you want to please God in your whole life, private, public, then you must pursue complete purity when it comes to sexuality. We are to see this far more importantly than our society tells us. And so here the teaching of Paul to the church is this. It would have been so countercultural in the Greco-Roman world because they did not think the way Christians were taught to think. In fact, in the ancient world, various forms of extramarital affairs were tolerated and some were even encouraged. That was the world they lived in. This guy, <clears throat> Demosthenes, a statesman of ancient Greece, he once said this, We have mistresses for pleasure, concubines to care for our daily body's needs, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. And so what that says was, in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for men to have mistresses, concubines, go to prostitutes, and also at the same time have a wife as well. That was tolerated and sometimes even encouraged. And you see, that's the culture in which Paul was speaking into. The notion of sexual purity was a very strange idea in the ancient world. But these young Christians that Paul was writing to, they had to learn it and uphold it and be different to the world. And so it makes clear here, he makes clear that you want to please God, then be different to the world, be distinct and be sexually pure. Have a look at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that is, holy and set apart for God, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, what does that mean, sexual immorality? It's the Greek word porneia, and in the Bible, it's really a catch-all term for all forms. This is how I explain it to our young ones. It's all forms of sexual stimulation outside the context of lifelong exclusive, faithful marriage relationship, which means it can be verbal. You know, the seductive words you shouldn't be saying. It could be visual, that is, the wandering eye. It could be virtue, the lustful thoughts in the mind. And, of course, it can be physical. And then we read verses 4 and 5, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And so Paul says pretty clearly, you want to please God, be self-controlled. And that is because we would know there are terrible consequences with sexual immorality. It doesn't take a genius to work that out. I mean, recently, in the recent months, our former Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, had an affair, and we saw how destructive that was. It wrongs the person, it wrongs the person's spouse, it destroys marriages, it tears down families. But something we often forget in sexual sins is not only that it is destructive, but it also brings about the anger of God. Any affair is an affront to God. 
And so that's what Paul goes on to say, verses 6 to 8. And that in this matter, that is this matter of sexual immorality, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. And why? Well, the Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, I do wonder how easy it is to forget how serious sexual sins are. It's just so private, personal, no one wants to talk about it. But it is deadly serious. And we, in a sense, today in our world, is really no different, not much different from the Greco-Roman world. Our culture today is so promiscuous. If anything, it is perhaps even more so. For example, pornography today is normalised. No longer the stuff of bounded magazines up high at the news agencies to keep away from the kids and teenagers. That was the day when I grew up. Today it's just at the click of a button. In our denomination, we have the Safe Church Unit, and they do research and they give us resources and help as ministers, and they make us aware of the danger and how widespread pornography is. And it is, in fact, quite shocking, really shocking. The stuff is really depraved. It was a survey conducted by a, a UK pastor of Christians, only Christians from the UK, from the States, and also from Australia. And the results of this survey was quite shocking. The survey revealed, I found this really shocking, 50% of those surveyed struggled with pornography. And two-thirds of those are married. I couldn't believe it when I read that. It is far more common than I like to hear. That's the first example. Today, premarital sex is just the norm and expected. Amongst our young ones, I mean, it's the stuff of TVs and movies and Hollywood, but it must never be of the Christian. And that is why Yvonne and myself, we make it part of our ministry, part of our pastoring of the younger dating couples, is that we would make an effort to catch up with all dating couples in our church. And so we had a few recently, and we've got a few more booked in the coming months to come over to our house. We invite them over, come over for a nice meal. They, they know they're dating, and they know what we might be talking to them. And so they come very nervous. They think this is a bit like a job interview or something. But we have a nice meal with them. We chat with them about all sorts of stuff. But on the night, we make clear to them what we missed out when we were growing up. We make clear to them, you are dating, yes, but you are still single. You're not married yet. You are still single, and so what is expected of you is complete purity before God. Treat each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not presume that you can be any more active than that. You are still single, not married. So we've done quite a few in the past, and we've got a few booked in, and they're nervous about coming, but we're excited. <laughs> Now, of course, another example today, extramarital affairs is just approved of. Well, what do they say? Well, people justify it all the time. Just follow your heart, people say. I mean, what complete nonsense. The human heart is deceptive. You don't follow your heart. In a newspaper article in The Australian, an article on affairs, we see 
that it affects all spheres of life, all professions. Relationship experts typically say, this is again shocking stats, they typically say as many as 40% of those in long-term relationships will have an affair. I mean, that is shocking. Almost 40%. But it's perhaps true. It's just that not everyone gets found out like Barnaby Joyce. But we must be warned here by the apostle. None of these things please God. Rather, they bring on the wrath of God. And so this morning, this might be quite uncomfortable for us to think about or even talk about, but the apostle himself does not avoid it, nor should we. And he does not allow us to ignore it because he wants us to live lives pleasing to God. And that affects all aspects of our life, private and public. And so this morning, not knowing the private lives of everyone here and not presuming on anything, let me share with you a few principles and advice that I use in my pastoring and caring of those I meet up with. This is advice and principles that I use and share. If this morning there are some here who do struggle with pornography, then that is something you need to make a clean break from. You can't continue to dabble because once you do, you become enslaved by it. A few years ago, I ran a seminar at a camp for blokes and we spent some time just exploring the the damaging effects of pornography, it destroys everyone. It's not good for those in the pictures or video. It's not good for the church. It's not good for you. It's not good for your future spouse. It's not good for your view of men or women. You objectify them. It's not good for God. It's really not good for anyone. It is damaging all over. And so if this morning, not knowing or presuming anything, if you do struggle... Of course, know that there is true, genuine forgiveness in Christ. He cleanses all. But do make yourself accountable to someone you trust. Seek help and speak to me if you can't find anyone. A book I would recommend you read if you do struggle is this excellent book, Captured by a Better Vision by Tim Chester. Excellent book. I've recommended this in the evening and many have read it. Seeking to please God is more important than our pride, and so don't hide it, speak up, find help, make yourself accountable. Another principle and advice, if you are a type of person who finds yourself to be a person where your eyes and your mind wander a fair bit, unhealthily, in impure thoughts, then the advice is, as soon as that thought comes in, kill it. As soon as that eye starts to wander and wants to have a second look, stop it. No second look. What I find helpful personally, if I'm tempted in any way, tempted for a second thought or a second look, I, I say a, a private secret prayer inside quickly. I, I, I sense that's coming and I say, Lord, please grant me pure eyes, pure mind and a pure heart. And that helps every single time because suddenly that person ends up looking like the Shrek, no longer attractive. <laughs> helps every single time, dispels any temptation. But seek 
seeking to please God is more important than these fleeting gratification. Now, if you're a parent or a grandparent with children or young adults of the dating age, then it is worth putting some effort in this area, if at all possible, depending on your relationship with your children or grandchildren, work at keeping them accountable. I have thought a lot about this. In the future, that dreaded day when Esther brings home a boyfriend, I dread that day. It won't happen yet. She's only 11 years old. Probably won't happen for a few decades. That's why I sent her to a girl's school. But I'll only allow a guy to date my Esther if he can promise this one thing, and that is you treat her with utmost integrity. You treat her like a sister, not a girlfriend, but a sister. And same advice to my boys when that day comes, that you treat these girls with utmost integrity, above reproach. Treat her as you would a sister. And so if you are a parent, grandparent, and you do have children, young adults at that age, worth working hard, speaking to them, and making them accountable. Or if they are dating and they're part of this church and we are not yet aware of them, let us know and we do the job for you. <laughs> but for those of us who are married, then the principle is clear. Eyes only for each other. I went to a wedding a few years ago and I still remember the wonderful prayer prayed for the couple. The prayer was that they would only have eyes for each other but hearts that are so big to love everyone around them. Wonderful prayer. Eyes only for each other, but hearts big enough to love everyone around. And so for the married, the principle is remain faithful in thought, in words, and in body. And that's the type of marriages we expect and want to see amongst us in this church, especially those of us who call ourselves Christians. And isn't it beautiful, in fact, if you look around and we have these wonderful married couples who have been happily, joyfully, I'm sure most of it is joyful, but happily married for 60 years, even 70. I think we've got a couple who've been married for 70 years in our church. A wonderful, beautiful model for us younger folks. But you see, Christians are to have the best marriages around, the best around, because our marriages are on display as a testament to the gospel. And so a good marriage reflects something of the love of God. A good marriage reflects something of the faithfulness of God, and that is what we all want here. And so Paul's command here is really for all of us, young, old, single, married, male, female. It is for all of us to pursue sexual purity. Now, last Sunday evening, I shared this story about Billy Graham. He was so acutely aware of the sinfulness of man that at the age of 30, when he started to become extremely famous as an evangelist from his rallies, he made a pact with three other trusted Christian men. And his pact was that he would never travel, meet, or eat alone with a woman other than his wife. That became known as the Billy Graham rule. In fact, it's still emulated today by the vice president of the United States, 
a Christian man, a devout Christian man, Mike Pence. And so Paul here is commanding Christians, all of us, please God by pursuing sexual purity. That is God's will for us. That's the first practice. The second. Well, the second area that Paul addresses is the area of brotherly love. If you want to please God, then you must love your fellow brother and sister, and you love them by not being lazy, not being a bludger, but a hard worker. Now, we're not exactly sure why Paul addressed this area of life, but it could be because in Greek culture, manual labor was despised and looked down upon and so was seen as the stuff of slaves. And perhaps these young Christians thought that as well, but that's certainly not the case. Or it could just be that these young Christians thought that Jesus would return so soon that they could just leave everything and not do any work. But Paul makes clear here, you want to please God, then you must love. And you love with your hands, with your work. And so we see that. Look at verses 9 to 10. Now about brotherly love. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Now they were willing to do it. And how did they show their love? Verse 11 to 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. And so all work, whether paid or unpaid, is loving our neighbours, part of how we love our neighbours. Nurses, electricians, garbage collectors, police officers, accountants all do important work to love their neighbour. And just as important, if not more important, unpaid work by full-time mums. Extremely important because that is the raising of the next generation. And for some, perhaps because of unforeseen circumstances, have no work, made redundant, but yet keep busy and productive in service, that is also loving, though not paid. And even for retirees, we have quite a few in our church. You see, as Christians, we really never retire because we always serve God, always serving him and working hard for the kingdom. And so it's, in fact, quite a blessing when we see amongst us in our church many retirees using their retirement, not just to play golf every day, not that you can't do that, but using their retirement productively, in service, volunteering, op shops, at church, involved in so many ways that show that they love their brother and sister. And some, so happy to always serve more, putting their hands up, I can serve more, a great use of retirement, productive for the kingdom. Paid or unpaid work is loving our neighbour. You see, because when we work, we can provide, we can serve, we can share, we can give. And just imagine, if I were not to do that, if I, my family, I just sit around, drink coffee all day, and expect Yvonne to do the work, to be the breadwinner, to provide, to pay for the bills, to do all the chores, and I just lay around. There is no respect in that, and I wouldn't respect that. And so that's why Paul here speaks against being lazy bludgers as Christians. We love by working hard. 
Now, as I thought about this this past week, I, I think that's perhaps not our danger. I think the bigger danger for a church like ours is the flip side. And that is we work way too much neglecting our great commitment to seek first the kingdom of God. Of course we have to work to love our neighbour. Of course we have to work to support our family. But we must keep the perspective. My life is not about working. My life is about the kingdom of God, the things that will last into eternity. Now, a wonderful line I learned from Philip Jensen, who was our camp speaker a few years ago. He said this, We don't live to work. We work to live. And we live for the kingdom of God. Do you notice the subtle difference? We don't live to work. My life is not about my work. But we work so that we might live. And we live for the kingdom of God. And so Paul makes clear here, one principle, live to please God. Two practices, sexual purity, brotherly love. The private life, the public life. And so now we return to the question I began with. Have I been active, intentional, deliberate in this past year in changing my life so that I'm more godly today? Do I think that my life today is more pleasing to God in these two areas of sexual purity and brotherly love? Well, it might be the case that you can't just remember, you just can't remember. And that's okay. There is no guilt treatment here. We must always remember the gospel at the center. We are all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All our works will not merit us salvation. I am saved, I'm redeemed, I'm reconciled freely by the work of Christ on the cross. Salvation is 100% the work of Christ. But just like what David Cook said, I cannot claim the benefits of redemption, but deny its implications. You see, these two areas that Paul speaks of in our passage, we must remember how countercultural they are. The church knew that, and we must work hard to live that. In, in some research that Timothy Keller, Presbyterian pastor, he, he put it this way. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. And that must still be the same today for us who are Christians. For us who are Christians, to please God in this way, stingy with our bodies, don't share it around, but generous with our love, with our hands, with our work, with our money, that is pleasing to God. And so if we, as we look back, we now look forward. A year from now, imagine that, 2019. Because of the gospel... Because of gospel implications, will my life in a year's time be more pleasing to God? Well, it should be, and it must be. Christ did not die for me so that I might live for myself. 
Christ did not die for me so that I can continue to wallow in sin and filth. Our life cannot remain unchanged, but instead our life is to be so transformed, so renewed, so sanctified, that it even dares to please God, that it even dares to bring a smile to the face of our God. And so do you think your life is more pleasing than a year ago to God? Maybe that is hard to answer. But will your life be more pleasing to God in one year's time? Well, let that be your prayer for me and my prayer for you. Let's pray.